Welcome back to the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast, where we aim to bring you the latest evidence and research to enable you to perform at your best, prevent injury, and recover well. The Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast is brought to you by Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre. I'm Anthony Lance, physiotherapist, co-founder of SSPC, and your host for today. Thanks for tuning in to episode 19. Today, we welcome ex-AFL legend and current media star, Jared Healy, who is perfectly situated to give us an idea of what AFL footy was like back in the day and compare it to what he sees now in his role as a commentator and as a broadcaster. We'll get Jared to reflect back on his career, but he'll also talk about the challenges facing today's AFL athletes. But just before we Getting into today's episode, if you're enjoying our podcast, please don't forget to hit the follow button on our home site, and that will make sure you don't miss an episode. And it would be great if you've got any comments or feedback, make sure you leave them on our site. But for now, let's get straight into episode 19. Well, it gives me great pleasure today to introduce Jared Healy to you. Um, even if you're a young AFL follower, you will have seen Jared on your TV and on the radio numerous times. Um, but for those old enough to remember, we watched him on the screens. But as a little bit of a background, 211 AFL games, 276 goals, Melbourne Best and Ferris 1984, three times Sydney Best and Ferris, so three years in a row, three times All-Australian, five times VFL team of the year, Brownlow medal in 1988, AFL Hall of Famer, Sydney Swans Hall of Famer and Sydney Swans team of the century. That's uh, pretty impressive. Welcome, Jared. Uh, Lancey, when you say it like that, uh, <laughs> um, it, uh, it sounds like I've played 400 games, but uh, no, <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for having me on. No, no, it's great to have you. I must admit I'm a fraction nervous because you've been interviewing people for 20 years and I've been yeah. doing it for 20 seconds. So how does it feel to be on the other end of the microphone for a change? Uh, well, I'll tell you at the end, to be honest. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. To be uh, frank, I don't often get asked the questions. I normally do the questioning myself, but... Um, uh, if you're as good an interviewer uh, as you are a physio, Lancey, you'll be fine. <laughs> uh, thanks, Jared. Well, look, let's get into it. I, I want to um, sort of talk to you a little bit about your career and then about your radio and, and probably get to where footy is today and your thoughts on footy and the, and the yep. current footballer. But we need to go back to the start and uh, have a look at your uh, career where you began at Melbourne in 1979 and you won a best and fairest in your early 20s. Um, what are your recollection of those days? you still remember your first game and your first kick? Uh, I do, actually. Yeah, I played against the Bulldogs, played on Doug Hawkins on the wing. First kick, I came off the centre square. I was a wingman back there and uh, basically just blasted it forward, just wanted to get that first <laughs> get that first kick away. And I can remember travelling up Punt Road um, at the time thinking, well, I can't take this away. Even if I only played one game, at least I've played one game of footy. But uh, it was a win for the Demons. We didn't have too many at the Demons. I didn't know when I first started, Carl Dittrich was coach, that uh, my time at the Demons was going to be so painful. But it yeah. was uh, a long haul. Um, uh, better days were to be had. I, I Fortunately, but uh, no, Carl Dutcher is a fantastic coach, uh, to be honest. I think he was ahead of his time. And in okay. many ways, I think, I think Melbourne heard in, um, in um, cutting his career short. Yeah, rightio. And where was Doug Hawkins at at that stage of his career? Was he... Second up and... year. Okay. All right. Yeah. So he was a, he was a young and up-and-coming uh, wingman on the, for the Dogs and uh, obviously... Our, our careers coincided. I played uh, plenty of state footy with Doug. Uh, didn't play a lot on him over the years because I, I moved to the middle and uh, he stayed and uh, became a legendary wing and Hall of Famer himself. Yeah, okay. And whilst we're on coaches, I, I'd forgotten actually that Carl Dittrich was there the early years. But uh, one vision that seems to come up at least once a year, I'm sure you're on the end of one of Ron Barassi's greatest ever sprays. Um, was that, that was you, wasn't it? Asked you yeah, whether you'd got a kick. I, I laugh these days because, uh, I mean, ultimately that was a reaction to being tripped over. We had that big, uh, we had a fight for a week because he said, oh, you went around, he had a great problem with people going to ground. 
Um, and I got hauled over the coals for uh, what I reckon was a trip. And the, the replay showed it was a trip. But Danny Barras really cared what it was. He just uh, wanted to make a point and uh, get me off and uh, fire up the team. And, uh, it was a bit painful at the time, but we all grow stronger because of these things. Yeah, yeah, I think we still all get a laugh when we see it come up. But um, look, you played 121 games at, at Melbourne and uh, left for Sydney at the start of 1986. Now, that was almost uh, the exact time, same time that the great Dr. Jeff Edelston took over. Um, were you ready to leave Melbourne or did the doctor sit you down and put an offer on the table that was too good to refuse? Like, What, what got you out of Melbourne to Sydney? Well... The history books will probably uh, like to record the latter version of your stories, but the reality was I decided to leave Melbourne probably in the last month. Had no intentions of going to Sydney. Didn't really have any idea where I was going. But I think if you're going to leave a club, you have to first and foremost decide that you're going to leave. Uh, well, at least that's what I did. Um, and it was coming to the end of the infamous five-year plan for uh, Ron. And I just thought, well, I've done my bit and if he can't lift us you know we'd won I think in my seven years there 44 games um, and I thought when I first heard Barassi was going to be coached that I'd be a premiership player over the next year or two and it certainly didn't turn out to be the case it was a very difficult five years uh, disappointing in many respects probably great, uh, laid the groundings for a reasonably successful era to follow but um, I reckon I'd done the bit and I essentially decided to leave. I had a couple of offers from other clubs, but I was um, I was actually um, flown up to Sydney um, with a view to meeting people who had said that they'd be able to get me into physiotherapy. I had the, I had the results, but uh, they were able to get me an adult edu- uh, adult entry into Cumberland College where I did physio. And, um, and, and really, that was what swayed me. It had nothing to do with finances. The finances were pretty reasonable everywhere. But uh, ultimately, the opportunity to become a physio was the reason I went to Sydney. Okay, yeah. And so you those first four years then, footy was interspersed with a fair bit of study. Or the, or the reverse. I'm not quite sure <laughs> which it is. But, uh, I mean, you, you, you understand how difficult uh, the, the course is. You've got to... You've got to um, dedicate yourself to it and you know I did that because um, I was very motivated and it was um, you know it was very much a, a recipe of get up early in the morning have a run you know I used to do four six or eight k's depending on what day it was before before uh, heading off to college and then we do the do the physiotherapy course I'd leave there about four o'clock and then head to training. Fortunately, in those days, you could do that, not the full-time aspect we've got now. Yeah, yeah. And um, what are your memories of the Edelson years? Because you really had the greatest, um, certainly three years in a row, but the greatest uh, uh, time of your career, I suppose, uh, when he was there. So, I mean, most of us think back to helicopters and uh, all sorts of things, but what are your memories of his years there? Well, in reality, Edelson was a marketing um, ploy didn't really have much to do with the footy team. I mean, the team was a the team was very different. It wasn't a club as such. It was a it was a on field group, and then there was an off field group in the office, and then there was this sort of marketing arm that um, uh, Edelston wasn't even really a part of. It was another group that um, did a hell of a lot of marketing. It was all razzle dazzle, as you know, and the cop the helicopter. Whilst it wasn't fictitious, it was I'd say it was on lease and used about three times. <laughs> yeah. um, but but ultimately, you know, we just played footy. We we didn't get involved in too much of the razzle dazzle. It was for me, it was uh, pretty much the same. It was you know, get up, run, study, go to training, go home, study, uh, and play footy. So it was very different to to today and. I mean, whilst it was it was in some ways glamorous, all the glamour revolved around one person, and that was um, Warwick Kappa. Yeah. So it, it really didn't permeate down to, you know, the true team. Yeah, yeah, sure. And if we stay, because um, this is part of trying to compare where footy's come, the science and the, the developments, can you take us through back in your time what an average pre-season was like? 
Oh, well, pre-seasons were very arduous. Um, but it, it, in reality, I don't think you knew how to prepare as a young bloke. At least I didn't as a 17 and an 18-year-old. Um, it probably took me till I was about 22 to realise just how much work you needed to do. Um, and so, you know, the, you don't really know how fit you can be until you get that fit. And I don't think you really understand how committed you need to be until you're absolutely committed. You think you're committed, but until you're actually fully committed, you don't realise how uncommitted you were sure. previously, if that makes any sense. But a pre-season, um, I love the pre-season training because it was, it, it, you know, I was left to my own devices and the smarter I got, the more dedicated I became, the more you could, you know, really work yourself and you didn't have to compare yourself to anybody. You just had to get the best out of yourself. So I was doing stuff that uh, a lot of other guys weren't doing. I, you know, I was inspired by a few people. I was inspired by a book Tom Hafey gave me about the great Jeff Hunt, the soccer Suprema, El Supremo. Right. Uh, sorry, not soccer. Squash. squash. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the amount of work he did in his uh, battle with his Indian counterpart just inspired me to do things. And I read Russell Green's book as well about all the miles he was doing in 1983 when he went from uh, a half-committed player at St Kilda to a totally committed champion at Hawthorne. And, you know, I started running, you know, big kilometres in pre-season and big kilometres through the year, in fact. Um, you know, I'm talking, oh, you know, 12 kilometres a day, right. uh, two 6Kers a day, and then interspersed with the odd 10 Ker. It was all long. It was all long distance stuff. Yep, very uh, different to today. Very different today. You know, as as time went on, I started interspersing that with things like doing twenty two hundreds. You know, I can remember uh, running from Ryder to Sorrento, um, and then doing twenty two hundreds. Right. You know, just 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 doing this stuff that ultimately was probably over the top and uh, led to overuse injuries. A couple of Ingle hernias. I know people don't think they exist anymore, but I can guarantee you they do exist. Yeah. And I and I sometimes feel that we're misdiagnosing a lot of inguinal hernias. Uh, when I when I see athletes and, and footballers who are struggling with groin injuries 18 months after it's been diagnosed, I often wonder whether or not the old uh, inguinal hernia fix would have fixed their problems up four or five weeks uh, after they felt the symptoms. But anyway, I digress. Um, but it was very much, it was up to yourself. You had to turn up reasonably fit. You turned up at about 20th of January when I first started. There was no pre-season before right. Christmas. So you were left to your own devices. Uh, and I can remember about 83, St Kilda started training before Christmas, and that was radical. Um, I'm not sure who the coach was. Might have been Jezza. Might have been Tony Jewell, but uh, they did a month before Christmas, and I thought to myself, "Well, that's radical." But I also thought, "Well, it won't be long before we're all doing a month before Christmas." Yeah. And, you know, and now you get a month off before Christmas. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, the amount of training you did was very much up to yourself. Um, you know, there was probably in seventy nine, eighty, eighty one, you'd get this sort of very basic weights training regime that they wanted you to put two kilometers sorry two kilometers uh two kilos on over summer i wasn't a great fan of weights I, I didn't do too many of them and if i did then they were sporadic um but it's very much you know you did your own stuff and that gave an opportunity for people but it also it also meant that probably the average was well down because it it just wasn't as um uh organized as it needed to be yeah, yeah, gosh, it's so different. And is it true? Um, I think it was your Brownlow year, maybe, that Tommy Hafey was sacked. Um, and uh, if you believe what you read, it was because he was too hard on players. Is, is was that right? Uh, probably there was. You know, there was there was a time where uh, we kicked three three years of uh, sorry three games where. We almost, well, we kicked 200 points, 200 points. I think it was 196 points. And Tommy was pretty keen on getting the record, but I think he was also pretty keen to keep driving us towards finals. And, and he, he could sense a little bit of, um, in his terms, uh, slackness and blokes with heads like boarding house puddings. 
Um, so he was, he was, as we got closer to the finals, he started to ramp it up, and he certainly trained hard. But I mean, one of the one of the frustrations I had with that theory is that you know there's three or four of us doing a lot of work ourselves before we even turned up to training. Like as I said, I used to run lots of kilometres before heading off to college. I'd do probably an average of a you know pretty well flat out six k run four or five days a week prior to going to college and then you turn up and you do a two-hour session. Yeah, right. Um, there were times, though, like after wins, after losses on a, on a, on a Sunday night, we, you know, we'd probably be often doing repetition miles around Centennial Park and then hills, et cetera, which, um, you know, a, there was a lot, bit of pushback at the end. I mean, there certainly wasn't at the finish, uh, sorry, at the start. I mean, I thought he was terrific coaching bringing people together and he did so by, you know, belting everybody physically, but, you know, he was, he was, a, uh, he, he was capable of getting a lot of physical commitment from blokes without um, upsetting people because everybody just banded together. We had a fantastic fitness coach called Jack Giddy who's since passed away, but uh, I can remember his, you know, his often comment was, uh, come on boys, let's not, miss out on this stuff this is the fun stuff and uh, then said about belting you and flogging you so he had a a, a great uh, sidekick did uh, Tommy but I mean I think ultimately after three or four years it got a bit frustrating and you know there was guys who were a little bit uh, frustrated but um, it was an unfortunate finish to um, to Tommy's career at the Swans because it was it was it was a great time for us yeah, yeah, sure. And considering how much you did and how hard you trained, it's interesting because for the vast majority of your career, you were incredibly durable. But the last couple of years, yeah. um, what what happened in those last few years body-wise? Uh, well, I think it was just, you know, it was a, a byproduct of probably overtraining. I, yep. I snapped a perineal tendon. That was the, that was the start of the end. Right. Snapped the perineal Neil Tendon in uh, 80, uh, 19, what was it, 87. And that wrapped around my Achilles tendon as it, as it healed. And that gave me a really bad Achilles. So that needed surgery. Um, and then in 88, I got a hernia about, uh, about round 14, 16, something like that. And when I say I got a hernia, that's what it was just diagnosed as. And, you know, I, I didn't train really at all except for doing laps in the pool. I had a friend that was, a you know, a, an A-grade water polo player. And, um, rather than train, uh, I used to ride a bike and do he- heaps and heaps of uh, intermittent 50-metre swims. And I became right. a reasonably good swimmer. And then I'd just do half an hour on a Thursday night. So that got me through the the uh, 98 season. Um, and then I had an operation and I was fixed within, oh, I don't know, I was fixed within um, four weeks, six weeks, I reckon. But it was a, re- a real frustration because I missed about the last two games and we should have played finals because, um, you know, I, you know, there was a you know a bit of contention over how to, how to train. And in, in the end, I, I wanted to keep playing. And I missed a couple of games. I think it probably would have helped us get across the line for... I think we missed out by two points or thereabouts. And in in 89, I had probably the best start to my uh, to any season I'd had. But about round eight again, I had this bloody uh, pain on the other side of the uh, groin area. And I knew exactly what it was. It was exactly the same symptoms. And this was the real frustration that they said, and I, and I get frustrated when I hear this in the medical fraternity, um, they said to rest and I rested for six weeks, rested for eight weeks. The symptoms went back to train, went back to play and the symptoms were exactly the same. Yeah. And then I went and had another operation and it was fixed, you know, once again, fixed within four weeks. And, and yet I continuously get told by the people who doubt whether there's such a thing as an inguinal hernia. Oh, it yeah. would have been the rest that fixed you up. Well, bull, bullshit yeah. it was the rest. It was the operation. I can guarantee you. And if I had about the operation earlier, um, I wouldn't have missed so many games in um, 79, sorry, in, what was it, 89? I'm getting the decades mixed up. Mixed up. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, that was a bit of a frustration. And then unfortunately, the following year, I uh, fell really badly on my wrist and uh, about round 17. And 
I snapped the scapholunate uh, ligament and that was the end of me because I, I had a really bad scar tissue reaction to it and couldn't bend my wrist for about six months. And so the advice from the orthopedic surgeon was, if you want to be a physio, don't do this again. And I wanted yeah. to be a physio because, you know, it was semi-professional and I thought I'd be uh, working with you in row <laughs> Bentley all these years, but uh, it didn't turn out to be so. No, no, I think you've done bigger and better things. But um, look, and it's interesting when you talk about six weeks of rest, God, we don't get anything to rest for a week these days. You know, it's always about what you can do. But um, yep. anyway, that's a whole other story. But look, just Let to finish. Let me go back yeah, before you move on. I'm a, a similar scenario in my second year, I had a head-on car accident and uh, I ended up stretching my posterior crucial ligament. And you'd be staggered, but the, the rehab for that was 12 weeks in plaster. Yeah, God, it's amazing, isn't it? And, uh, you know, Take you four months to get out, back. Just, yeah, wiped out a season. Yeah. And I'm not, not even sure if it was grade one, grade two, grade three. I'm <laughs> gonna, who knows? It was just, uh, you've got laxity in your knee, bang, you're in plaster for 12 weeks. Yeah, God, amazing. Um, just a couple of quick questions to finish off your career. Um, the best player you either played with or against? Lancey, I would have been very disappointed if uh, your burgeoning media career didn't include the best player that you played with or against. So, uh, <laughs> uh, best player clearly I played with was Diesel, Greg Williams. He yep. was by far the best player I played with. Um, probably the best player. Uh, this, well, I, should, I, mean, I have to have to think about this because I did play with Lee Matthews in a state game. Right. And uh, Lee was my idol. And I remember sitting next to Lee on the bus going to football park was my very first state game. It wasn't State of Origin back then, 1982, but it was a state game. Football park was full, but driving there, I thought, well, this will be fantastic. What could go wrong? I'm sitting next to the Man of Steel. This is <laughs> this is glory. Well, about 15 minutes into the game, um, a guy called uh, Roberts, Neville Roberts, from um, he played, I think, with Richmond for a few games. He played in Adelaide. He gave Lee the best short arm right jab you've ever seen. The man right. was KO'd. <laughs> That's not going to strip. This bloke is indestructible and he's been KO'd uh, in the first 15 minutes of my first date game. Fortunately, we did win that uh, particular game. But uh, he was my favourite player, my be the best player I saw. But Diesel was clearly the best player I'd played with. Um, so I guess the best player I played against was Lee Matthews. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Now you've mentioned. Well, I I had two coaches down. I've now got to put Carl Dittrich in that. But if you put if you take Dittrich, Barassi, and Hafey, does does one stand out as being the best you had? Oh, yeah, clearly Tommy was the best coach I had because uh, he was such a, a great team builder. Um, you know, his meth his method was more to play for the coach. Barassi's was probably more to play in spite of the coach, um, even though I was great friends with Brass off the ground. You know, I, um, he was a different unit, but it was such a frustrating era because it was, um, you know, I think I compare those guys to the great coaches of now, and, and it's not to diminish their achievements because they were great coaches for their era, but in many ways they were what I describe as... Um, try harder coaches like to get a better effort it was just you got to try harder and you know I guess the best example of how frustrating that could be was uh, when you're getting tagged uh, and I was getting tagged by uh, a couple of guys that I was having trouble with because the, the easiest way to win is to either win it on the inside or run and run harder and you know Hafey used to come out and say you're not running hard enough and I said Tommy I am running my guts out, but this bloke was a middle distance runner for Victoria. So, I mean, there's a fair <laughs> chance he's got me covered in that department. Um, so, you know, the, the try harder coach eventually moved towards the more tactical guys. Yep. Like Shooting probably started it. And then Robert Walls got involved with the huddle, which was revolutionary at the time. And then all of a sudden, Rodney Eade started putting players, extra players, stoppages behind the ball. And uh, it just kept going on and on. And there was Pagan's batting. And then there was a, the Eagles web. And then Clarko turned up with a cluster. And I mean, it just, it just goes on and on. It was, 
it, it was both fascinating to watch it evolve, uh, but it was also frustrating to watch it evolve because it, it took away the spontaneity and the, the players being the, um, the decision makers rather than the decisions being made by them and instinctively it became this really defensive yep. structured game which you know I think was a an unfortunate outcome of what was brilliant coaching time to take a short break and reflect back on our most recent podcast with one of the world's leading experts on recovery, Dr. Shona Helson. Shona's knowledge on recovery is incredible, and there were so many practical words of advice for athletes of all levels. Take a listen to a small part of what she had to say. One of the things is that what we understand now about the importance of sleep, it's just, it is so profound. It's profound across so many different areas. And so, you know, and now the research, we know what sleep deprivation does. It's bad for, you know, it's increased risk of mental illness is, you know, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, like you name it, you get bad sleep for a long period of time and your health implications uh, you know, it, it's, it's poor. Um, and so, and as I said, our experience with athletes, the really overtrained ones, the ones in a really bad place, haven't slept well. Um, and so, and the other angle to that is, you know, you might wear compression garments for an hour or you might hop in an ice bath for 15 minutes. We're talking sleep, eight, nine hours should be, you know, where you've got hormonal release, where you've got muscle repair and brain repair and rejuvenation. It's like nine hours of this, you know, yeah. amazing thing. There's a Matthew Walker's book um, about sleep. He says, you know, if we weren't meant to sleep a third of our lives, Mother Nature made a very big mistake. Yeah. Um, and the problem is we don't sleep a third of our lives anymore. Everything else gets more important. If you want to catch up on episode 18 with Shona Helson, jump across to the Perform, Prevent, Recover page and you'll be able to download that episode and everything else we've done. But for now, let's get back to episode 19 with our guest and AFL legend, Jared Healy. Yeah, okay. And I want to, I'll talk to you a little bit about the rules because I know you're a bit passionate about that. But if we go on to sort of just a little bit about what you do now, because that, that leads into a bit of pressure on the players these days too, that, you know, you, after you retired, you uh, had a long stint with Channel 7. Um, you've been on 3OW forever, um, hosting sports today for over 21 years and Fox footy for just as long and, and on the couch for 20 years as well. Um, I'm just interested in, an industry where there's high turnover and there's new young retired players coming in, what, what's been the secret to you having such great longevity in such mm. a tough industry like sports broadcasting? Um, what's been the secret? Uh, well, I'm not sure, to be honest, uh, Lancey, but I, I was lucky enough to get on a good horse, and that's 3AW. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was an opportunity and Stephen Price, who was the program manager at the time, took over the four to seven shift and he quickly worked out that the uh, most difficult period was for him to keep his ratings up was to continue to rate between six and seven. So David Hooks and myself took over the six to seven spot, which spiked because there, weren't, there wasn't any afternoon, excuse me, or evening uh, sports media at that stage. I mean, there was uh, 3UZ at the time at a breakfast program that didn't rate. Uh, anyway, we came on and quickly it, it filled a hole, you know, a gaping hole that's now being filled by SEN, which, you know, SEN was created on the success of sports today um, back in the, you know, the late or the, yeah, the late 1990s. Um, SEN was born out of that and it's still there. So there was a huge hole so I was lucky enough to get there with a good partner. And, you know, I think what we did do was we changed our radio recipe from being, you know, reporting sport to challenging and turning it into current affairs of sport. So we were issues-based rather than results-driven. Yep. So, so it was all about opinion, and that sat nicely with 3AW. Um, it was that's. It, 
you know, opinion is, you know, the I guess the cornerstone of three AW's success. Um, and you know, we had a good team, and you know that recipe of uh, between six and eight o'clock at night. It went for about eighteen years of those hours. Uh, just I think filled the breach, and you know, we were, I guess, clever enough. Uh, radio broadcasters to keep it fresh, to work out what was, you know, ticking people's boxes to, uh, I remember Hooksy a couple of times when our ratings went off a little bit, uh, you know, he was, he used to say, oh, well, that's it. If the ratings are down, let's bag soccer. So, he, <laughs> and then this is 20 years ago when soccer wasn't as strong as it was now. And even the cyclists on beach road used to get a workout uh, on a regular basis. <laughs> But all of these things uh, have their moment and they, they grow through. And um, it was, you know, it was a fun time and it still is a fun time. I, I very rarely leave work um, in a worse mood than when I turned up. Yeah, yeah. Well, whatever it is, it works because I, I reckon there's only the, the famous Bruce that's ahead of you and uh, you might have a couple of years to catch him, but he didn't play 15 years of AFL footy first. So, um, right. so um, now on to uh, today's game. Um I've got quite a few things I want to ask you. Obviously, the most topical thing at the moment is COVID and the impact. Um, it's it's yeah. been it's been a really hard time for the AFL and the players. Had it's really hit hard. Oh, it's been incredible. I don't think anybody could even have thought the, in their wildest dreams of uh, a worse nightmare for the game. No crowds, players uh, without their families, uh, spending months and months of uh, the year away. Um, you know, dealing with incredibly irrational at times um, CHOs. I mean, I understand the job they've got to do, but, uh, gee, some of the stuff they've come out with has been incredible. They've been, you know, so most governments have been reasonably, relatively supportive. Some have been less so. But the job that Gil McLaughlin and his team has done, um, and I think in the main the support from governments, have, uh, have found a way through. There's been moments of complete, you know, uh, shock and horror at what they've done. I think uh, in South Australia, we're seeing a couple of, we're seeing that play out with our Olympians having yeah. to double quarantine. Yeah. But uh, preventing preventing the Crows and Port Adelaide from training because two people had COVID in South Australia during the year was another example of um, nonsense, if you, if you ask me. But, you know, in the main, the game has done an incredible job to get through. I think it's been well supported by both broadcast partners um, and it's been well supported by the fans who uh, have continued to pay up for their memberships, even though they're seeing not that many games. Uh, they've continued to support Fox Footy, which is important as far as the income streams for the game is concerned. But, uh, yeah, once again, it's it, it's an amazing effort by the players and the coaches who, well, it's a tough job to be a coach anyway, but uh, to be doing it in, in this particular era, it uh, adds more, layer after layer of uh, difficulty. Yeah, and and do you still hold gen or do you hold genuine hope the grand final will be in Melbourne this year? Well, I actually hold genuine hope, and I know this will upset uh, some of your Melbourne-based listeners, Lancey, but I have a, I hold genuine hope that the grand final is played in Perth. Right. For a long time, I've always thought that the AFL should move it around. I, I'm a huge. I mean, it's fashionable these days, but it certainly wasn't when I retired from footy in. Uh, 1991 to be a, a you know a true advocate of the national game and to me the national game you know once now that these stadiums have been built I think every state deserves the capacity to have a grand final now I know that the uh, Victorian government and the AFL have done wonderful things together from a financial perspective that MCG is an unbelievable stadium the offices uh, of uh, the AFL are magnificent officers, and I know there's been a lot of government support along that way, but I still think, despite the fact that there's a contract, this is a great opportunity. I mean, why would we play the grand final at the MCG in front of 15,000 people or 20,000 yeah. people? Let's take this opportunity to take it somewhere else, as long as they pay the money, and as long as they uh, give us some sort of guarantee they're not going to shut it down and take it to that magnificent stadium in Perth. Yeah, yeah, I reckon there's a fair chance that might happen. But um, let's get on to. I wanted to really interested in your thoughts on on concussion, particularly after listening to uh, an interview you did on Sports Today. And and just for the people listening, um, 
as a little bit of a background, like we, we, we've seen a shift in the last uh, 12 months from basically a doctor's discretion type policy in the AFL to them doubling the mandated time off this year, so so 12 yep. days. So all players miss a minimum of a game, which, look, I, I think is probably the bare minimum we need. But, um, you know, to go and discuss this topic, I think people need to understand two main terms. Like, firstly, concussion basically is a head knock where there's some sort of change or dysfunction in the brain. And then the term that many people have heard about, CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which basically, you know, in simplistic terms is is like a disease or, or change in the brain structure. And I think the fears come about, we've always correlated that concussion in footballers, and it's come, I mean, the NFL paid out of three quarters of a billion dollars with this. Um, that there's a, a direct link between concussion and the development of CTE. Now, neither of us are medical experts in this field, but you uh, did an interview with a neurosurgeon, Gavin Davis, at the start yep. of this year, and, and you, you said to me in the end you spoke to him for for hours. And so, look, I'm just interested because I got the feeling from speaking to you briefly that it might have, you were surprised at his views and it might have changed your, your, your thoughts on concussion? Oh, I think that summed it up pretty well. I mean, what I, I found it intriguing interviewing uh, Gavin Davis. Um, he is a world expert in concussion. He's lectured the NFL. He's a significant person of influence on the AFL's concussion body. Um, but I think it's an unfair criticism of those um, outside of that camp who have criticised him as being basically a, a mouthpiece for the AFL. I mean, he's an independent thinker. And I, I rang him, or at least he rang me initially, and asked if uh, he could background me on some knowledge because the, the whole push in the media has been this accepted um, cause and effect, concussion and CTE and therefore death and uh, dementia, etc. And his views were, you know, really enlightening um, and they were very much suggesting that the case still is yet to be made in the link between concussion and CTE. He's not saying it's not there, but he believes that uh, um, world science is yet to actually prove that that is there. Um, so I, I found uh, his motivation outstanding. I mean, he was very much frightened and worried about the negative press for the game. He thinks it was a one-sided debate uh, being pushed through some significant parts of the media. And, uh, um, you know, I just found that fascinating. And, uh, and watching it, it's, it's treated in the media as cause and effect. Yeah. Um, and yet he, he was absolutely adamant that, uh, you know, the, the, gen, the, the latest science doesn't prove that. And just to pick you up on what you said, I... I mentioned, well, what do you say about the NFL and their huge payout? He said, yeah, but what people don't forget, what people fail to uh, acknowledge is that there was a no liability uh, clause in that payout as well. It was really just probably what the AFL will end up doing, set up a fund to help those people, you know, allegedly affected by the symptoms. Um but without any, you know, acceptance of liability. So, yeah. you know, that, that was of interest to me too because, I mean, after the infamous movie, uh, I think we all just assumed that there was some sort of I cause think. and effect. So I, I look forward to further investigation. I look forward to, you know, a greater understanding. And I think taking a conservative approach is a good one. Yeah, and, and can you see, do you think the AFL's got it right at the moment with the 12 days? Can you see it stretching out a bit more over time? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I think they, they just have to follow the science. Mm. Um, you know, and the trouble with science, when you get uh, science and lawyers and experts and all manner of people involved, uh, you know, it becomes a question of, okay, which scientists do you believe in? And then you have to ask yourself, which scientists, uh, in, in whose interest is it to get more money, et cetera? It's a very complex issue. Um, I, I don't think that this stage is a case for 
increasing the minimum, and it is only a minimum of 12 days. Clearly, if the symptoms are bad, you, you don't play. Yeah. Um, now, next thing, which, look, I think goes hand in hand with concussion is um, obviously we see a lot of mental health issues um, popping up in, in today's football, and obviously we, we're both you in particular aware of you know Danny Frawley and Shane Tuck and just the sad stories but uh, mental health has become a massive issue in today's game hasn't it well I think it is society in general and you know we're just a microcosm of that a reflection of that um, and that the beauty of the people that are playing AFL footy is that they get probably greater access to professionals in that area than you know, your average person in the street. So whilst, you know, they may be subject to more pressures if they keep opening up their iPhones, um, um, they also get much greater access to people that can help them remedy any stresses that they're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, okay. And it was interesting in one of my um, other podcasts with Matthew Lloyd, who... You know, I was amazed that he brought up that he had some struggles during his career and you sort of think of these big, strong, tough, successful footballers and think, well, he, even he struggled a bit. But um, did you, I mean, you brought up Hooksy before and I, I know that was a tough time in your life, but during your career, did you have any mental battles, any really tough times? Oh, well, it depends on what you determine or define as a tough time and, and- um, you know, if you don't get a kick for four weeks, yeah. uh, you're having a tough time. But it was actually one of the, you know, one of the beauties of studying, whether it was in physio or phys ed, it was, you know, you had a much better balanced life. Um, so, you know, a football game, you might be getting a negative on the weekend, but uh, if you're getting up Monday morning and you've got to go and work out what the attachment of the uh, gluteus maximus is, <laughs> um, you know, it refocuses you and you're in a different yep. world than just the constant onslaught of football, football, football. Um, and then you go home at five o'clock as they do these days and you're not studying. You're basically just, if you allow yourself, you can be, uh, you can be hit straight in, the, uh, straight in the frontal lobe with uh, feedback on yeah. AFL 360 and the like. Yeah. Or if you, if you pick up your iPhone, uh, and you dial in any manner of uh, websites, you're getting feedback there. So you know, keeping the balance, I think, is a significant is a significant area we could get a lot better at. But the players have got to be get on, the players themselves have to be the ones who jump on board and uh, work it out for themselves as much as being force fed all of this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Time to take a short break and mention Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre, who bring the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast to you. Established for 24 years and with two great clinics in East Bentley and Mentone, SSPC brings you everything you need to keep yourself in top shape, whether it be for sport, for chronic health or pain conditions, post-op conditions, or just to be your best in life. Our clinics have a number of very experienced physiotherapists, all with special interest areas that help cover any injury or condition you may need assessed. Working alongside our physios are podiatrists, massage therapists and myotherapists and dietitians, meaning you can get access to a multidisciplinary team care approach to your conditions. SSPC also runs a busy schedule of classes, including Pilates, GLAD Strength for Arthritis, Strength and Conditioning, and ACL Rehabilitation classes. Take a look at all of our services and skills by typing in www.sspc.com.au into your favourite search browser. Rightio, just a couple of things to go. Uh, the rules, as I said, I know you've I've, I've heard you on radio a few times um, get uh, pretty passionate about rules. Um, do we need a break from from change? Do we need to, I don't know. I'm asking you. Is there too many changes? Uh, well, you know, once again, I've done this on radio a thousand times. Nobody likes change to rules except the rule they want changed. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that the game has changed incredibly because of coaches. People think it's because of rule changes. I mean, that's just absolute nonsense. 
the game changes because coaches change. I mean, you yeah. think of the game, you think of the game in 1980, the game in 1990, the game in 2000. I mean, in 2000, and your average midfielder would get 28 possessions. That's a good game. Yeah. And that was 10% of 280 possessions. That's a really good three-vote game. Yeah. Now a good midfielder, we sort of laud these people for getting 40 possessions, but ultimately it's still only 10% of the 450-odd possessions, four to 450-odd possessions. So this game is incredibly incredibly different. And it gets to a stage where do you actually do you actually just allow coaches to take the game in the direction that they want to take, as against what whoever's running the game thinks is the best version of the game? And I, that's why I think you know the rules committee have done a good job over the years, but they've always been one step behind the coaches. But you just can't allow you can't allow the game to lose its full forward. I mean, Buddy Franklin will be the last thousand goal yeah. kicker of all time. We haven't had a century for, what, a decade. So we've lost our most important aspect for having kids come through the game, playing the game, and that's this superstar full forward. Dunstall, uh, Jess Alenko, Peter Hudson, Peter McKenna. You go through any era. They are the ones that people have talked about uh, coming and drag kids into the game and also people into the grandstand. The high mark, it was going out the back door because short kicks were prevalent. Luckily, we've had a great year because, you know, the, the stand on the mark rule has meant more play on and therefore more quick, uh, more speed of the ball and ultimately a long kick into the forward line. And we're seeing the return of the big mark. So yep. if you don't have rule changes, you are at the mercy of uh, coaches and the coaches aren't worried about the aesthetic of the game when they're in the coaches box. Yep. They may be when they're in neutral territory, but... I think that the game needs protection and the, the core elements of the game need protecting. And I think that's why we should have continual rule changes to keep in front of that. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, and if I mention the word recovery to you in 1988, yep. what would it have meant back then? Uh, recovery back then, 1988, was probably uh, six to eight beers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A couple of stretches and, uh, you know, maybe a light run on a, on a Sunday morning. Yeah, righty. So if I said to you now that you you had to jump in an ice bath and fill out a wellbeing questionnaire and not have a drink of al- alcohol and make sure every meal was nutritious, would you have been a better or a worse player? Well, you certainly would have been a, a better athlete. There's no question. I, mean, I, I can remember talking to Barry Mitchell, who was one of the first guys to get on involved with that um uh, that sort of recovery regime. Uh, and he did it at the very end of his career. And he just couldn't believe the difference that it made in his capacity to train during the week and yep. therefore recover uh, from a week to week basis. But uh, no, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a much better science that drives performance now. Um, I'm not sure it's a better game to play from a fun perspective. Yeah. But, uh, from a career perspective, I mean, our athletes are now trained like Olympians. And I mean, the Olympians for years used to laugh at us saying how dedicated we were. And, um, but now I think our guys are doing just as, just, just, it just as hard from a social perspective as, um, as they do. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting, you know, when you look at AFL these days and literally from Saturday to Saturday or Saturday to Sunday, whatever it might be, it's all about recovery. Whereas back in, yeah. back in your day, the Tuesday, you're still getting smashed um, only three days after a game. Yeah, well, we, did, we would have done, oh, I couldn't tell you the amount of kilometres during the week, but, um, you know, a hard training session now is an extended massage. Yeah, um, yeah. The, you know, back back in the day, uh, you know, play Sunday, do a two-hour session of, you know, you'd be you'd be running up to fifteen kilometres in the two-hour session, maybe, you know, with competitive work and um, lots of repetition, hard running, and, and and it was uncontrolled because if you if you'd had a bad day, for instance, and you were really working hard in circle work, you could do twice as much or three times as much as somebody who didn't want to work in circle work. So there was no control. There was no recording. I mean, you just have no way known of working out how many kilometres you'd run per week. And yet in this day and age, 
they would be able to tell you how many under the days you ran and, and at what speed you ran them. It's been, it's been a big change. Um, now, second last question, um, and one that uh, you will have an expert view on is the coaching handover. Now, Paul Ruse and John Longmire, it was as smooth as they could have hoped, but we, you know, the Malthouse Buckley and, and most recently Clarkson Mitchell, um, is it going to work again, that sort of um, Paul Ruse, John Longmire smooth handover? Well, I think it probably will at Hawthorne because um, Clarko's leaving. Um, if the senior coach wants to make it work, it works. Um, yeah. If Do you um, think both the recent senior coaches possibly didn't want it to happen when it happened? Well, I think that seems to be the case. I mean, even Clarko, I think Clarko's, you know, he would have liked it maybe an extension, but, you know, since the decision, since the public airing of the decision, their, their last four weeks have been... Um, Pretty good. Well, we had a graphic on the couch on the weekend. They're, they're, they're just about the best side in it the last yeah, four right. weeks. You know, they're number one or number two in all the relevant uh, uh, categories that make up a premiership team. So it's quite extraordinary what they've done in the last four weeks. Uh, but it's going to be a challenge for Sam because Sam Mitchell's... Now, the bar's been raised even higher because the last four weeks have yeah. probably set the standard. So, you know, it hasn't probably worked in his favour. But uh, I, w- I would have thought if I was Sam Mitchell, I would have preferred another 12 months on the sidelines, get another six draft picks uh, yeah. and and kick off your career that way. But, I mean, you're never ready, according to all the coaches that uh, have taken it on. Yeah. So he might as well jump in now that uh, the decision's made and, and get on with it. Yeah, well, time will tell. Um, now, last question, and it is a bit of a loaded one. Um, uh, are you the most famous person to come out of St. Bede's College, Mentone? Uh, no, I think Luke Beveridge has got me covered now. He's a premiership coach. <laughs> Rightio, Jared. look, on that note, uh, it's been great having you on and appreciate your, your time and your views and certainly um, gets through what I wanted to get through, which is, you know, the changes over time have been pretty pretty amazing and uh, no doubt I think the game's in a better place just with the science and, and what we know. But, uh, yeah, really appreciate your time today. It's been great to have you on. No worries, Lance, and I look forward to my next hot needling into the, <laughs> into the glute. No worries. I think the pleasure's all mine with that one. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Right, Good luck. Thanks. Well, that's it for episode 19, and what a great opportunity to hear from someone who's been at the top of the AFL tree for over 40 years, both as a player and now as a media commentator. It's amazing the complete turnaround in some of the techniques that have happened in that time. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, please don't forget to hit the follow button and ensure you get notified as soon as our next edition is released. 